This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. The Guardian. Video games are big business. In April 2018, a market research firm called NewZoo estimated that 2.3 billion people across the world play video games, and that by 2021, the amount of money that people spend on games will exceed $180 billion. But it's not all good news for the video games industry. The World Health Organization has been working on an update for its diagnostic manual, the International Classification of Diseases, and in June 2018, it released its latest version of the ICD-11 for implementation. Among the new mental health disorders? Gaming disorder. Parents have long thrown around the word addiction when complaining about how long their kids spend on the Xbox, but now, there's a medical condition. The response has been divided. Some players and game creators worry about a moral panic around games, while those who struggle to control their gaming are glad for the official recognition. So who's right? As someone who's played video games all my life, I know that it's easy to lose an entire weekend to a favourite game, but can some players really be so dependent on video games that we can place them in the same category as drugs or gambling? On a physiological level, I would expect gamblers and gamers who are genuinely addicted is that they would have things like nausea, stomach cramps, hand sweats, the shakes, etc. And I've certainly found that in my work on gambling and gaming. Or does singling out video games for this medical condition risk pathologising a popular hobby that the vast majority of people engage with healthily? And what consequences will we see as a result? So we have people who are playing games maybe because they're socially isolated, maybe games are part of how they connect. If a parent or a loved one or, or a teacher sees a young person suffering, they might misattribute their suffering not to depression or to some biological cause, but to the, to the thing that they're using to cope. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips With Everything. Hello, Mark. Hi. Hi, this is Jordan from The Guardian. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good, 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 good. Um, I'm just gonna... Mark Griffiths is a distinguished professor of behavioural addiction and director of the International Gaming Research Unit at Nottingham Trent University. 
Uh, we specialize in research into behavioral addictions, particularly gambling and gaming, but more recently we've been looking at things like social media addiction, work addiction, exercise addiction and sex addiction as well. When I saw this story discussed in the news, one thing that struck me was that while some publications spoke of addiction, the official term is gaming disorder. So I asked Mark why the wording is important. You know, people ask me, you know, is there a difference between gaming disorder and, and uh, gaming addiction? And it all depends, obviously, how you define addiction, because you can speak to 50 psychologists and we'll all give you a slightly different definition of what it is to be uh, addicted to something. My criteria are very strict. So, in fact, very few people that I've ever come across who would be genuinely addicted to gaming by my criteria. Maybe more people would fit um, the criteria for, for gaming disorder in the World Health Organization because they don't require things like withdrawal effects or tolerance. These are things that we, we associate with uh, substance-based addictions. So I do believe that um, for gamblers and gamers who genuinely are addicted to, to their particular activity, they get withdrawal symptoms when they're unable to engage in that activity. And I am talking about, on a psychological level, increased moodiness, increased frustration, increased irritability. But also on a physiological level, I would expect gamblers and gamers who are genuinely addicted is that they would have things like nausea, stomach cramps, hand sweats, the shakes, etc. And I've certainly found that in my work on gambling and gaming, but you don't find that in gaming disorder in the World Health Organization. Dr. Shabilsky? Oh, hey, sorry, I hear you on my headset. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the World Health Organization's decision has not received unanimous support from the experts. Can you hear me now? Dr. Andrew Shabilsky is an associate professor and the director of research at the Oxford Internet Institute. Most of my research is concerned with uh, human well-being and human motivation, um, specifically focused on video games, uh, the internet, and social media. Unlike Mark, he is more sceptical about the World Health Organization's announcement, including why they called it a disorder rather than an addiction. My hypothesis about that is that they know there isn't enough evidence to identify what in the activity is itself addictive, and they haven't worked out whether or not it's, say, a side effect of addictive personality or another condition, or is it itself kind of a behavior that has something in it that that draws people to it unhealthfully. And that really labeling it an addiction kind of officially would be a a pretty massive error of commission. So if we put aside this new classification just for a moment, do you consider gaming disorder to be a genuine mental health condition? Um, No. So on the the basis of the available evidence and, and what we know about games versus other forms of activities, um, there's no reason to think that games are special if we compare them to other human pursuits like playing sports or having a family or, um, I don't know, viewing internet pornography. Um, there doesn't seem to be anything special about games, at least in terms of the scientific studies that we've seen to date. To better understand what exactly gaming disorder is, I asked Mark what the World Health Organization has said that clinicians should look for when considering a diagnosis. Uh, well, they, have, they basically have kind of three criteria. So the first one is what we call impaired control over gaming. Um, so that, you know, this is gaming is basically affecting every area of your life. You're doing it more frequently. It's, it's very intense. It lasts for a long time. Then the, the next kind of criterion is that over time you're giving increasing priority of gaming over your daily activities. Uh, and then the third criterion is basically a continuation or escalation 
of gaming despite that those negative consequences really what they're they're talking about is you know behavior that clinically impairs your day-to-day life we're talking about something that completely compromises your relationships or your work or schoolwork university work depending on what age you are Andy immediately noticed a potential flaw in the concept of connecting this kind of gaming behavior with how the rest of your life is going. Yeah, so I mean, it it makes a lot of sense that if we're kind of talking about kind of trying to set any activity apart um, from the day-to-day life, we'll set some conditions on it, like this idea that it has this, the activity when taken to excess has a negative impact on your life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an addiction, and that doesn't mean it's a very good kind of way of separating normal from pathological behavior, you know. Um, There are many reasons why a test might flag, you know, an issue. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that you have a disease. So what about potential health effects then? Because Mark did say that it it shouldn't count as an addiction unless there are these negative effects. Uh, He said in some cases he's seen people with physiological withdrawal symptoms, so things like the shakes. Have you seen anything like that in your research? Yeah, no. And I guess this is a, a, an area that it's really important to kind of touch on kind of what most of the real kind of uh, data looks like. So, so most of the evidence is correlational. So they ask someone, um, how do you feel right now? And kind of essentially how addicted are you to games? And then when those two things are correlated, they draw an inference that the bad thing that's happening with games is causing the bad thing that's happening in someone's life. Really, when you look at the studies that follow people over time, like some of the ones that we've done, um, we don't see that gaming by itself kind of adds to human suffering over the long run. Using the North American criterion, people who get flagged with having a problem with gaming now, um, they don't appear to have the same problem six months later. Although Mark Griffith supports the decision to include gaming disorder as a mental health condition, he plays a lot of games himself, and has written several papers about the positive effects gaming can have on things like cognition. In fact, there's no evidence that moderate gaming has any negative uh, effects whatsoever. But of course, when we talk about the negative side, we're talking about this tiny minority of people. um, And we, we do have to put things into perspective that the vast majority of people who play video games this is something that's really good for them. It's so you know, I'm not in, in no way anti-gaming whatsoever. Okay, so most games have positive elements to them and most people aren't affected by disordered gaming or pathological gaming or whatever you want to call it. But let's talk about those games that do have that type of addictive behavior. Let's talk specifically about loot boxes. So these are bundles of randomized in-game content that players are encouraged to buy with real money, whether that's in a game that's otherwise free to play or one that costs £50. Countries like Belgium and the Netherlands are stricter about them than we are in the UK because they regulate them under gambling laws. Why is there this kind of disagreement or confusion? To someone like myself who's written a lot about what I call the convergence between gambling and gaming, loot boxes to me are akin to gaming. If you buy five loot boxes and there's a chance of winning certain things within that loot box, even though the, most of the gaming developers will tell you people win a prize every time, I argue that main, you know, the main prizes people win are actually a lot less financial value than what you paid for them. What we know about loot boxes, of course, is that the, the more kind of excessive a player you are, it's probably you're going to be more likely to be buying those loot boxes. And so video gaming now has that financial consequence. And so there are a lot of these kind of psychological and social um, uh, commonalities between gambling and gaming. And there, there's lots and lots of convergence. I mean, it all depends on how you define gaming and digital gaming to start with. Andy Shabilsky disagrees with Mark on the connection between gaming and gambling. 
any two kind of types of gambling, like any two fixed odds betting machines, they're actually much more similar to each other um, than any two video games that you kind of pull out of a hat. The category of games is very, very broad. It's a bit like saying um, food addiction without specifying kind of a problem with regulating, say, fats or proteins or carbohydrates. Um, it's just, it's an underspecified disorder. What about loot boxes? Do you think there's some sense that the types of games that can elicit addictive behaviours are those that include gambling mechanics? Should we maybe just legislate against the gambling aspect? So the, the loot boxes is an example of a game mechanic. It's an example of something that we can all point at and say, um, does this thing look or does this thing behave the way that something like a fixed odds betting machine uh, looks and behaves, right? But there was even a paper published this week in Nature Human Behavior that attempted to kind of categorize the different forms of loot boxes that are used in different games. And I found half a dozen factual errors in it. You know, video game researchers and, and, and people in this area, they're really behind the ball when it comes to kind of research methodology. And so this is the thing, this is the thing that really concerns me, is that it's entirely possible that there are very manipulative mechanics inside of games, but the ways that researchers have been studying this, it's kind of like when you're a hammer, the whole world is nails. None of the evidence that, that came through the ICD expert panel, none of it was based on loot boxes because none, no video game researchers were talking about loot boxes three years ago when, when a lot of these important decisions were being made. Loot boxes is, is something we should look at, but it's absolutely a post hoc rationalization. And insofar as it encourages researchers to, to think more carefully about what it might be inside of a game that might be addictive, in the same way that we know nicotine is the active ingredient that's addictive in cigarettes, that's good. But if we're just pulling examples out of a hat, that's bad. After the break, we'll look a little closer at the research that contributed to the World Health Organization's decision and the practical implications of this new classification. If you've got a comorbidity of depression, for instance, and that is one of the reasons why you're gaming, is that you know giving people you know, kind of antidepressants or Prozac-type drugs, you know, if you can cure you know, some of the other comorbidities, then what you should see is a diminishing of, of the gaming as well. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. 
In this week's Extra Books podcast, we're treating you to a reading by Bill Nye of the Moomin short story The Invisible Child by Tove Janssen, in association with Oxfam. Here's a little extract. The bell came tinkling downstairs, one step at a time, with a small pause between each step. Moomin Troll had waited for it all morning. But the silver bell wasn't the exciting thing. That was the pause. Ninny's paws were coming down the steps. They were very small, with anxiously bunched toes. Nothing else of Ninny was visible. It was very odd. Moomin Troll drew back behind the porcelain stove and stared bewitchedly at the paws that passed him on their way to the veranda. Now she served herself some tea. The cup was raised in the air and sank back again. She ate some bread and butter and marmalade. Then the cup and saucer drifted away to the kitchen, were washed and put away in the closet. You see, Ninny was a very orderly little child. To hear the full story, go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, we heard from two academics who have very different views on the recent World Health Organization classification of gaming disorder as a mental health condition. For Andy Shabilsky, the research on which the World Health Organization based this decision was insufficient. On the other hand, Mark Griffiths of the International Gaming Research Unit believes that gaming can become a behavioral addiction like any other if it has a negative impact on your life. So, Mark, you mentioned earlier that the financial element of gaming, like gambling, contributes to the potential for the activity to become addictive. If it is the gambling element of some games that present the highest risk, should we not just categorize that kind of addiction as gambling disorder? No, I, I don't think at all. I mean, what we've got now is that whereas before there was a limited num- a time in the day, you know, you probably couldn't gamble for more than about 10 hours uh, because of, you know, what, what happened offline, of course, online you get this 24-7, 365 days a year availability, whether it's shopping, whether it's gaming, whether it's gambling, whether it's sex. It's the kind of online games that tend to be to have more association with problems. But I do want to put, I just want to stress the context of this, is that very few people would ever be diagnosed with a gaming disorder. I mean, one of the things about the, the WHO criteria is that they say you know, typically you should have had this for 12 months. So the, the fact is, you know, if you get somebody that is totally engaged in games for a couple of months, Obviously, that doesn't mean they're addicted, even if they're playing, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a day. Yeah. So I think on on kind of philosophical grounds, we need to be pretty specific about what we mean when we use the term addiction. Are we talking about kind of something that really is impacting people the way serious drug use like cocaine or heroin does? um, Or are we talking about something that's kind of part of everyday life? So it's true that you can take things like exercise or sex to kind of the extremes, um, but that doesn't mean that the behavior itself is pathological. And, and I think that focusing on kind of the darker aspect of a behavior without really understanding its place in kind of society and human thriving um, really puts the cart before the horse. And again, people that are 
saying that, you know, by using this term gaming disorder, it's going to create a moral panic and millions of people, millions of children particularly will be classed as addicts. That's just absolute rubbish because the only way that you could be classed as having a gaming disorder is by a qualified clinician, a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist who would actually look at, you know, the totality of your gaming in terms of your life. You know, the criteria that, that the World Health Organization have come up with is, is, is almost like a kind of indicative guide. But at the end of the day, it's only a clinician that can diagnose somebody with gaming disorder. And this, this introduction will not lead to millions of people being classed as having gaming disorder. Mark was keen to emphasize that the World Health Organization's decision won't spawn a gaming disorder epidemic. So why are people like Andy still concerned about this classification? You know, our research finds that between one-third and one-half of percent of players might actually meet some qualifications or some, you know, some threshold for gaming disorder. But that's still tens of millions of people on the planet. You know, so we have people who are playing games maybe because they're socially isolated, maybe games are part of how they connect, and, and they might not be doing good in, in kind of other parts of their lives. And games are a really, like, positive, generative part of their experience. And so... If a parent or a loved one or, or a teacher sees a young person suffering, they might misattribute their suffering not to depression or to some biological cause, um, but to the, to the thing that they're using to cope, to the thing that they're using to build their social world. So there's plenty of room for debate on whether or not the term gaming disorder should even exist. But what about those patients who are diagnosed? What kind of treatment could they expect to receive? You know, most therapists will use a kind of uh, kitchen, what I call a kitchen sink approach of using lots of different things. So you may have one-to-one uh, counselling with somebody. There may be you know, some kind of group therapy. There, there would also be what we call pharmacotherapy, where you're given some kind of medication. So, for instance, if, you're, if, if, if you've got a comorbidity of depression, for instance, and that is one of the reasons why you're gaming, is that, you know, giving people, you know, kind of antidepressants or Prozac-type drugs you know, if you can cure, you know, some of the other comorbidities, then what you should see is a diminishing of, of the gaming as well. The mere mention of drugs did not sit well with Andy. We know from other parts of science and medicine that kind of always testing and always intervening is not the best thing to do. You know, there's many tests have false positive rates, many interventions, uh, and many treatments have their own either financial or kind of uh, biological costs to them, the side effects, all right? And so it's extremely premature to talk about any of these things. If it's just the case that people can become addicted to almost any kind of behaviour, why do we specifically need a classification for gaming disorder? Or do we need classifications for hundreds of behaviours that could potentially become addictive? Or do we just need a general addictive behaviour classification, do you think? No, I, you know, I don't think there is utility for a general addiction classification because the whole thing about addictions, there are far more similarities than dissimilarities. There are idiosyncrasies in every single addiction. You know, people will often say, you know, I've got an addictive personality. Well, in fact, there's no evidence whatsoever that there is a, tra a trait or a set of traits that is predictive of addiction and addiction alone. And it's also saying is that if you have got an addictive personality, you can never be cured from this. And obviously, we know that people do overcome their addictions. I do think there has to be separate diagnoses for separate types of disorders and addiction because not everything is the same. So the key thing that you have to remember for all of this is that absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. 
And so it's entirely possible that things like gaming disorder and addictive personality, um, they do exist on some kind of measurable, reliable level. Um, but we shouldn't interpret not having good evidence either in the positive case or the negative case as scientific justification for our pre-existing biases. And so the thing we need to keep in mind is that this is a quickly developing area um, and, and we get del deluged pretty quickly um, under a pile of, of pretty low quality research. What would need to happen, research or otherwise, to convince you that gaming disorder should be considered a possible mental health condition? I'd like to see researchers stop wasting everyone's time and money. I'd like to see them share their data, pre-register their hypotheses, you know, do registered trials, and, and share their materials. Because without that, science isn't incremental. It doesn't grow. And, and when that doesn't happen, we don't know what studies don't work. There might be a lot of hidden studies in the same way that we have hidden medical trials. And really, if we're going to be adding games to this pantheon of disorders, the, the least we should do is, is hold it up to that same standard of evidence. One thing everyone seems able to agree on is that while the vast majority of people who play video games do so without negative effects, a few players do struggle to maintain a healthy relationship with games to the detriment of other areas of their life. But while people like Mark think that we should have individual classifications for addiction to all kinds of behaviours, even things like exercise or work, others worry that the World Health Organization has been too quick to blame video games for unhealthy behaviour without enough research into the nature of that relationship. Sticking with video games, our interesting and depressing tech fact of the week is all about one of my favourites, The Sims. A mobile version of this popular life sim game, The Sims Freeplay, has been banned from several countries in a move that fans claim is due to the game's LGBT content. EA did not confirm why the decision was made to pull the game in Asian countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but a spokesperson pointed to regional standards. That's it from us this week. I'd like to thank Mark Griffiths and Andy Shabilsky for joining me. Make sure to check this week's episode description on the Guardian website for links to research mentioned throughout the show. As always, send me an email at chipspodcast@theguardian.com with any comments or queries or just ideas for future shows. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 